Good morning, Life Church. It's so good to be here together with you this morning. My name's Nate, for those of you who I haven't had the chance to meet yet. I serve here on the worship team at Life Church Livonia, and I've been attending church now for a few years together with my wife, Rachel. And we've just started a brand new series here called This is the Way, which is based on one of my favorite shows on TV, The Mandalorian. And it's this creed, it's this blessing, it's this way, this, this, this saying for this way of life, this is the way, that they say to each other on the show. And here at, at Life Church, we're trying to live into that idea with the way of Jesus. This is the way. What does it mean to live like Jesus? What can we learn from studying how Jesus lived? And so this series focuses on getting past just a belief in Jesus. Jesus is more than a moral code for our lives. Jesus is the embodiment of the way that we want to live the entirety of our lives. And so we believe that there is wisdom and there's beautiful truth to be found by studying and modeling our life after Jesus's. And so that brings us to this five-week series here called This is the Way, the way of spiritual disciplines of Jesus. And if you haven't heard that term before, a spiritual discipline is essentially just a practice that is found in Scripture that promotes spiritual growth in followers of Jesus Christ. And it's important to note that they themselves are not considered holy or virtuous. Um, it's more like a a habit or an exercise. And so if you think of working out at the gym, uh, you know, going to the gym, ultimately the goal is more than just showing up to the gym. That's great. I mean, if you want to start like, hey, I'm at the gym, great. But ultimately the goal of going to the gym is muscle growth or increased endurance, right? And the same thing applies with spiritual disciplines. The goal is spiritual growth. And so last week, Alex started by explaining the spiritual discipline of community. And this week, I had the chance to talk to you about the spiritual discipline of solitude. But before we get to the specifics of solitude, I have a fun story to share with you. In the 20th century, there was a famous American composer named John Cage. And uh, he's most famously known for his musical piece called 433. And this piece was based on another work he wrote five years earlier called A Silent Prayer, which will make more sense with the context after I finish sharing the story with you. But needless to say, when 433 was first released to the public, it had a polarizing response to it. This piece was first performed at a famous concert hall outside of Woodstock, New York. It was in the concert hall in the middle of a forest. And uh, to start the song, the pianist walked up to the piano, sat down, closed the lid, and then uh, set a stopwatch for 30 seconds. And he sat there in complete silence with his hands in his lap. After 30 seconds, he opened the lid again, shut it, reset the stopwatch, and sat silently for two minutes and 23 seconds. And then after that time was up, again, he opened the lid, shut it, reset the stopwatch, and sat silently for a final minute and 40 seconds, thus adding up to the song's name, 433. And you can see there's kind of a fun image here. This is the first act of 433, and uh, no notes to be played. So during this performance in the concert hall in the middle of the forest, audience members said that they could hear the breeze and the leaves through the trees outside. They said they could hear the light rain on the rooftop of the concert hall. They could hear crickets chirping outside in the forest. They could hear audience members breathing and shifting their weight next to them. And uh, the silence that night was reported as deafening to those who attended. And uh, the mixed responses, the polarizing responses I was telling you about, some audience members were outraged. They felt like they were taken advantage of, they paid money to be there, they felt like they were part of a prank and they were angry. 
Some reported feelings of uncomfortability. They felt like they didn't know what to do with the silence. They weren't expecting it. They didn't know what to do with themselves for a whole four and a half minutes. And then some people said that they were really sad when the piece stopped because they were just enjoying that space. And then when the next song starts and there's this abrupt rush of music again, they're like, oh my gosh, like it just catches them off guard. They wish that silence never ended. But that was the point. That was the point John was trying to make with this piece. He had people's time for the night and he wanted the audience to slow down and pay attention to what was going on around him. Remember, I said this was in the middle of the forest, so he wanted them to hear those sounds that were already present in the space around them. The sounds of the wind were the notes in the song and the sounds of people's feet shifting on the floor was percussion. And we see with this story that silence can be deafening, uncomfortable, even disturbing. Now, why, why is that? Some of us maybe don't like silence because it makes us feel lonely. We don't like the way it makes us feel. Some of us, it makes us feel bored. It makes us feel like, oh my gosh, like FOMO, I'm missing out. Where's the party? Where's the music? We're afraid of what's going on underneath the surface and it's just easier to have some noise in my life to distract me so I don't have to sit with these thoughts in my head. Some of us don't like silence and solitude because it makes us feel unproductive. We say to ourselves, I'll sleep when I'm dead and I don't have time for this. I keep thinking of all the things that I need to do right now. I don't have time to slow down. And then maybe for some of us, we love all the silence that we can get. We just feel like we can't get enough of it. Maybe we have kids or parents that we're taking care of in our lives, just dependents in our life that we're responsible for. Or maybe we have really intense jobs or multiple shifts in a row or 70 hour work weeks where we're like, oh my gosh, like goodness, there's just no way for me to have time for solitude. Whatever the context is that you find yourself in today, my hope is that when today's done, you have a deeper understanding of what this discipline of solitude looks like. And that through this understanding of solitude, you come to understand the beauty of what it does for our relationships with Jesus Christ. And if you fear the idea of solitude, I hope that you learn to love it. And if you feel more confident in your approach after today, that's great. That's the goal. And for those of you who love the idea of solitude, I hope you walk away with some more resources that help you find it and practice it consistently. And before I continue into the scriptures, I want to point out that I've used a couple of words interchangeably so far, silence, solitude, stillness, and that's intentional. Um, there are th three different words that a lot of authors and writers use to discuss this um, term of solitude, this discipline of solitude, and they're referred to as the three S's, solitude, silence, and stillness. And just real quick definitions for each of them, silence just means to be alone, or solitude just means to be alone. It means to turn away from human interaction and external stimuli. Silence is just to abstain from speaking, to listen, to be quiet. And stillness is to stop and cease, to not move, to rest, to stay fixated, to wait to be at peace. And each of these uh, disciplines are technically separate from one another, but together they help build a full picture of what solitude really is. Uh, but for our purposes of today and just the time that we have, whenever I refer to one of these words, I'm really referring to all three of them being practiced simultaneously. So last week, Alex talked about community. He kicked us off with these three questions. And every week that we go through one of the spiritual disciplines here, we're going to ask those same three questions. And so just to review, those questions are, 
Why did Jesus practice solitude? How did Jesus practice solitude? And then how do we do solitude? So let's begin. Why did Jesus practice solitude? Well, we see Jesus practice solitude for several reasons, and I'm going to jump around to a few different sets of scripture just to kind of help illustrate this point of the why. Um, And then after I go through those main ideas with those different sets of scripture, I'll zoom in on one key scripture for the day that we can kind of sink our teeth into, and we're going to use that to help us understand how Jesus practiced solitude. But first, we've got to understand the why. What's the purpose? Why did Jesus practice solitude? So first, we see Jesus practice solitude to gain discernment before he makes decisions. And we see this in Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, who he also designated apostles. And you'll see that as we go along today in different sets of scripture, I've actually underlined portions that I want to call your attention to. And these have to do with the specifics of solitude or how we see Jesus practicing it. And so in this case, you'll see that I've underlined that Jesus spent the night in prayer, and then he chose his disciples the next morning. And so we also assume that the inclusion and the order of Jesus praying first before he picked his disciples is important for us to understand the takeaway of these verses. So based on this context, I understand this and see Jesus practicing discernment before he picks his disciples. So that's number one. Second, we see Jesus do this to begin his mission and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, Luke chapter 4 shows us that in verses 1 and 2. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So Jesus was alone, alone for 40 days in the wilderness. And this is an expended, uh, extended time of stillness and solitude to be present before God, before like this huge mission begins that we see laid out in the rest of the Gospels, right? Everything else is to come after this. And so Jesus demonstrates that this extended time with God is really important with changes of seasons in our life, right? So Jesus goes from being uh, known as the son of Mary and Joseph to being publicly known to the world as the Son of God, and that's a huge transition. And so if Jesus is doing that, it's just important to apply that to us as well. When we're experiencing these seasons of transition in our life, it's important to be rooted in our identity in God first before we're sent out, right? Moving on, number three, we see Jesus do this to rejuvenate his energy, his mind, and his spirit with the Lord. And I think this one is a key point for understanding the the why question today. Why do we practice solitude? Solitude is a time of rejuvenation to fill our spirit with the Lord's presence. We see this in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus heals the leper, starting with verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So Jesus performed a miracle 
and people are noticing. Crowds are following him. News is spreading. But what do we see Jesus do? He prioritizes solitude and time alone in prayer. And this verse is helpful because we even see the frequency of it. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And this was a rhythm of life for Jesus, something that was crucial for his spirit and for his ministry. Jesus was a leader and a giver each day and every day. And we know that we can only give what we have, right? And so if Jesus is prioritizing time alone to be rejuvenated in his spirit before he goes out into his mission field every day and gives, same thing applies. That's probably a good indicator for us to do as well, to rejuvenate our soul in solitude. Next, we see that Jesus did this to be with God during trials and express his honest emotions and feelings. We, see about, uh, we read about this in Matthew 26, starting with verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And I, I see these verses as super powerful. This is that really famous Garden of Gethsemane moment before the next day. We know that Jesus is betrayed that night. We know that he's going to be killed and he knows this the next day. And what does he do when he's experiencing this deep moment of suffering? Again, he prioritizes time alone with the Father. And we see that Jesus is even intentional in the way he does it. He asks the other disciples to stay behind and stand guard while he approaches God alone in prayer. And this moment's raw, this moment's vulnerable for Jesus. And uh, it's a moment where we see him approach God and God be a comforter to that moment as the Father. So these are four reasons why we see Jesus practice solitude. Now, like I said, let's zoom in. Let's ask how Jesus practices solitude and dig deeper into one passage together. And for that, let's look at Matthew 14. Matthew 14 tells us about two of Jesus' most famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus walking on, the, uh, on, the, uh, on water in the middle of the storm. But before these miracles happen, it's important to know some context with this chapter. This chapter starts by talking about the death of John the Baptist, who we know was a cousin and a great friend of Jesus. And John is killed by Herod while he is imprisoned, and the news of his death reaches Jesus. And so this is how we see Jesus respond to that, starting with verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. 
Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before Jesus went out to them, uh, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. So let's put ourselves in that context again, right? John has just died, and he's probably the one person on earth who has one of the best limited understandings of what Jesus is doing there, what his mission is while he's on earth. And uh, John was family. He was a great friend to Jesus, and Jesus is mourning the loss of him. And Jesus' response to this, we see that right away at the beginning, it's to withdraw by boat privately to a solitary place. But what happens? He's followed, and he gets interrupted. And I just imagine Jesus' emotions here in this moment. He's tired. He's sad. He's human. We know this. We know that Jesus gets tired like we do. We know that he sleeps like we do. He probably just wants some time alone with the Father in this moment. And how many of you can relate to that? Imagine this idea of losing someone close to you, a brother, a sister, a parent, a best friend, a spouse. You're grieving and you're in this space where you're, you're just looking for space, literally. But you get interrupted. And you know, for me, if I was in that situation, that would just be naturally frustrating. It would totally test my patience. It would test my kindness in that moment. I'd just be like, oh man, like now's not a good time, you know? And Jesus is tired and he's probably like feeling the lowest he's felt in a while. But these, uh, the crowd interrupts his quest for solitude. And how do we see Jesus respond? Well, verse 14 says that Jesus has compassion on them and he heals their sick. And then he goes forward to feed 5,000 people. So Jesus is so loving and faithful in this moment. He takes care of the people that showed up. He heals them and he gives them food. He's just taking care of their basic needs. And I've always thought it's interesting how in this moment, Jesus doesn't use this moment or this platform uh, for a crazy powerful sermon. He just feeds them and dismisses them. And that's the faithfulness when you're just in a really low moment, you know? So Jesus prioritizes solitude, but he's interruptible. Jesus doesn't say, well, I got interrupted. I guess there's my chance at solitude for the day. That was my attempt. He also doesn't say, nope, sorry, uh, I'm on my way to solitude. I know you're all here. That, that's too bad. Sorry, I, I got to go do my thing. No, we see Jesus here be interruptible. We see Jesus show that his pursuit of solitude is not at the expense of people that need him. And he doesn't neglect responsibility in order to pursue solitude. So for us, in our application, we know that when we pursue solitude, it shouldn't be at the expense of other people in our lives, like our spouse, our friends, or our children. What else do we see in Jesus' pursuit of solitude? Let's look again at verse 22. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd. And then he went up to the mountainside to pray. So Jesus clearly communicates his needs and then he follows through. Jesus' plan is clear to his disciples. They don't need to mind read. They don't need to guess what Jesus wants to do next. They're not saying, oh man, uh, Jesus just performed a big miracle. Do you think we need to stay out of his way? Like we don't want to get, you know, we, we don't want to interfere or bother him or be a burden. Nope, it's, just, it's really clear. Jesus communicates 
to his disciples that he's reserving time for solitude, and that's what his plan is. And after Jesus dismisses his disciples, we see that Jesus stays behind to clean up. Jesus finishes the mission before he goes to solitude. Look again at verses 22 and 23. They say that immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And then after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. It's like after church today, if we're physically together, you know, someone's got to put away the chairs. Here, someone's got to put away the sound equipment when we're done. And uh, Jesus' solitude doesn't end the moment his sermon is finished. It begins when the chores are done. Jesus doesn't make the disciples do the dishes for him. He finishes the ministry for that day, clearly communicates his needs and his preferences, and then he goes to spend time in solitude. And I think we can really learn from that example because it just shows that Jesus' pursuit of solitude is not toxic and it's not at the expense of other people around him. And then finally, what happens while Jesus is praying? If we go back to verse 23, it says, After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves uh, because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. While Jesus is in solitude, there's a crisis. There's a storm. And uh, the boat was far from land. It said it was being buffeted by the waves and the wind. But we see that Jesus didn't go out to them until dawn. Now, why is that? Well, I mean, Jesus didn't let a crisis pull him out of the solitude that he was in. In the middle of a storm, Jesus practices differentiation. He sees the storm, he recognizes it, but he doesn't need to immediately fix it. Now that's an interesting point, right? Because some of you might be listening to this and be like, hmm, hold on, Nate. I thought you just talked about Jesus being interruptible, and that's a pretty good thing, huh? What gives? It sounds like this is a direct contradiction to that. And it's a valid question, and I think it opens up uh, the, the, the air for a cool conversation that we could have. It's just too long of a conversation that we could have right now. And I, just to give you like the quick Spark Notes version, I think ultimately it comes down to discernment. There's a balance between Jesus being interruptible, and there's also a balance to Jesus being protective over his solitude. He notices the storm during his solitude, but he helps take care of it after his solitude is done. His disciples struggle for a bit, but Jesus ultimately goes and meets them afterwards. And the same goes for you. I encourage you to practice discernment in your own pursuit of solitude as well. Maybe something needs to get done now, Maybe it can wait. It's hard to give you a, a straight-up rule of life to follow. It, it, it does take discernment. And I think uh, a really basic example of a storm, just to give you an idea of what that could be, um, I know for me, when I try to spend time in quiet time or solitude, I know that I get like flooded with this idea of all the things that I got to take care of. When I slow down, all these things come up to the surface in my silence. And I start thinking like, dang, like, oh man, I forgot to reach out to so-and-so. I forgot to respond to this. I forgot to take care of that. I got to go do that right now. Or, oh man, like, I'm just like really behind on this. I, I got to go. I don't have time for this. I got to go take care of that. And for me, if I, if I let those intrusive thoughts stick around and stay in my quiet time and solitude, 
I know for me at least, I'm not having a very high quality discernment and uh, uh, time of solitude with God. My mind becomes more focused on the worry than it does on meditating and just being with God. And if I answer those thoughts by immediately needing to go and take care of everything before I can finish my solitude, I think to a degree I'm missing the point, right? I think there's an aspect to Sabbath, to solitude, to prayer that involves trusting God that he can take care of those things that I feel like need to happen later. That there's this importance to sitting in this space with God that I know I just really need. And so, in summary, how do we see Jesus practice solitude? Well, first we see that he identifies that he needs it. He's in grief and he pursues time with God. Jesus also seeks it appropriately. It's not at the expense of other people that he's responsible for, but he doesn't have to fix every present storm before he enters into his solitude. Jesus practices differentiation while clearly communicating clear expectations and boundaries that allow him to reliably practice solitude in his life. And then Jesus creates space for it. He gives it a lot of time. And this is the point I want to end with here with this fifth point is he gives it the whole night because it takes time to let God speak into your soul. It's a relationship. And how do other relationships work in your life, right? If I run into the house after a work day and I do a quick check-in with my wife for five minutes every few days, do you think that I'm building intimacy with her in my marriage? No way. I, there's no way. I don't think so, right? I build intimacy in my marriage by spending hours together with Rachel. We share our days together. We share our lives together. We share laughs together. I'm curious about her day. She's curious about mine. I'm curious about each other's interests. We go on dates together. It's a shared life experience together. That's what builds intimacy in my marriage. And I asked the question, why would our relationship with God be any different than that? What is it about Jesus spending an entire night together with God that we should meditate on? What should we pull away from that? Have you ever considered how much joy and peace Jesus probably experienced in those nights with God? Now think of someone in your life that you're really close with that you love to be with. Think of that person that you have conversations with them, and then when it's over, you're just like, oh my gosh, that was, that was awesome. I had so much fun. I laughed a lot. I feel really refreshed. I feel like that gave me a lot of energy, and I, I can't wait till I can do that again. Our relationship with God works the same way. Solitude is resting with the Father and meditating on saying, I'm with my shepherd. I have everything I need long enough for you to actually believe that. It's letting God reaffirm you and tell you that you're his beloved son or daughter. It's letting God tell you that he's got you and you're in his hands. God is trustworthy. God is faithful. And God loves you. And just like any other relationship, when we feel loved, we naturally learn to love back, right? And so what's really cool about his uh, is that as God's love for us increases and our love for him increases back, so does our capacity for love for other people around us. Richard Foster has a really beautiful quote regarding this, and this is a major takeaway. If you've zoned out, now's when I'm asking you to come back to me, snap back. This is what I want you to pay attention to. Richard Foster has this really cool quote. He says, The fruit of solitude 
is increased sensitivity and compassion for others. There comes a new freedom to be with people. There's a new attentiveness to their needs, a new responsiveness to their hurts. In our relationship with our Creator, with God, we experience deep love that fills inner holes and needs of our soul. We were made for it. We were designed for it. And when those needs are met and we can accept that we're loved, it allows us to look beyond ourselves. We can say to ourselves, hey, my needs are met and God, I am loved. I can trust that. I don't need to focus on myself anymore. Now I can like be aware of what's going on around me. I can be aware and attentive to the needs of others around me. And you know what? In your life, everyone you know is struggling with something. Everyone you know has needs. And it's a beautiful thing when you can be a part of a community that is attentive to each other's needs, when we can be focused on showing love to other people around us. And you see, that's the type of community that we're trying to build here at Life Church. We're trying to build a community where we can learn to pay attention and be responsive to what God's doing around us in our community. And God invites us to follow him into that. He's already at work. He's saying, follow me. So what's Jesus' invitation to you this morning? How do you feel Jesus inviting you to practice solitude with him? Is solitude something that you just need to begin to prioritize? What happens when something hard in life comes up for you? Who do you turn to? What do you turn to? Is it Jesus or is it someone or something else? Maybe you come to church, but you haven't done a whole lot to invest in your relationship with Jesus. And if you're resonating that with that, I just invite you to start practicing solitude. Because in solitude, we find that there's more of God to experience and to be found than what we have right now. And we know that's never a bad thing. Or maybe uh, uh, to experience solitude, you just need to allow yourself to be interruptible. Shout out to the parents who've been thinking throughout this whole sermon, yeah, where on earth am I going to find time for this? This sounds great, but there's no way. What's the answer for finding solitude in crazy seasons of life? Well, there's not a coverall answer that I can give you, but I can give you some ideas that I've heard from other people. And uh, one idea is just to get up earlier before the rest of the world wakes up. I've heard parents say that they can maybe get a half hour of consistent solitude in during the mornings before their kids wake up. And uh, I think that there's also a beauty to the gift of being able to give your day to God before it even begins. Or maybe for you, if you have a commute, that's another idea. Maybe you can take advantage of that quiet time. Maybe instead of choosing to listen to music or a podcast, you just choose to give God that time in silence instead. Wherever you can find little pockets of solitude and silence in the day, just take advantage of that. Maybe solitude is something that you just need to clearly communicate. Am I getting interrupted because of legitimate needs? Or am I being interrupted because I'm just not setting clear boundaries with people around me on my time? Are people taking my time because I haven't communicated that I desire that time for solitude? Or do you need to differentiate when it comes to solitude? Are there storms going on in people's lives around you that you just need to allow instead of trying to fix? When you engage in silence, do you find yourself to be obsessed with worry? I know, like I mentioned, that I've just struggled with this many times before, um, talking about all those intrusive thoughts that come to your mind when you spend time in silence. And for me, one solution that I found to be super helpful is just to have 
a pad of paper or a journal or something next to me where I can write down those ideas and thoughts that come to my mind. So when I think about tasks that I got to do or people I got to respond to or something that I got to just give to God, I just write it down. I write it down to get it out of my head so it doesn't have to take mental space up anymore. And then I can just trust that, you know what, God's got me. My future self can take care of this. I want to be present and I want to focus on God right now instead. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're interested in this idea of solitude and maybe you've even tried it, but you just feel like you've hit a spiritual wall or a ceiling. And if that's you, we've included some extra resources for practicing solitude in the digital bulletin. I read some great books. I listened to some great podcasts for today's sermon. I did link all those and a set of resources online. If you're curious to dig into that more beyond what we can talk about this morning, those are great. Uh, I want to encourage you with that. And, um, if you are feeling discouraged today, I do want to encourage you in those feelings as well. It's just, it can be difficult to, to quiet your heart before God. I know that it can be hard, really hard to acknowledge pain when you're spending time in silence. But you know what? We know that God shows up. We can trust that. And he says, seek me and you will find me. And he wants to meet you in whatever version of solitude and whatever season of life that you're in right now. And just remember that example I gave, that Garden of Gethsemane moment, and what this is the way is all about is modeling our life after Jesus, right? Like, what do we see Jesus do on the really bad days? Because <laughs> that, the whole crucifixion, the Garden of Gethsemane, that's a bad day, right? So, so what do we see Jesus do in that moment on a bad day? He approaches God. He shows up. He was in so much distress that he's sweating blood, right? But he shows up. And you know that God was faithful and right there with him. So if you're running into frustrations with your relationship with God, I encourage you to reach out. Talk with me or talk with someone else here on staff so that we can walk through it together with you. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you understand these restless feelings that I'm talking about in your soul, and, uh, but you don't know what to do about it. You've tried a lot of things that this world has to offer, but you've noticed that you're just never satisfied. You've tried X, Y, Z, but you feel like, feel like you're missing something. Maybe you're here today and, and you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus, but something has drawn you here today and for whatever reason, you just feel like this is where you need to be today. And if that's you, I just want to say that this is the way pursuing a relationship with Jesus is a great place to start. Jesus' pursuit of a relationship and solitude with God is an invitation for you and I to follow. The whole point is that we want to live and model our lives like Jesus. And so Jesus is modeling and inviting you into relationship with him today. He doesn't want you to feel alone and unknown in this world. He doesn't want you to feel those feelings of loneliness when you slow down in silence. He wants you to feel full and with him. You were created beautifully and intentionally by him for so much more than just surviving. You're created to be in relationship. And here's the truth we see of that in the gospel, the good news. When we are created, we know that we are created in the image of God. And God said that, that was good. He looked at us and said that it was good. It was good to be with him. And we experienced full relationship together with him in the garden. But then we see humanity enter into rebellion. And that's what we call sin. Sin is just rebellion and separation from God. And we know that God is life. And so that separation from God results in death. And so when sin divides us, it breaks God's heart because his whole goal 
is that he wants to be our father and in relationship with us. And because of that love, we know that God didn't let the story end there. God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserved on the cross. He took our sin upon him and he paid the price for that so that this chokehold that sin had on us was gone so that we could enter into relationship again. I think of the curtain tearing in the temple from the top down. It's like we had entry. We had the ability to enter into full relationship with God again. And by believing in Jesus and accepting that gift that he gave us, we can be free from sin. We can live a new life with him. And we have Garden 2.0, right? A new, full relationship of intimacy, solitude, fullness with God. And that's your opportunity here today. That's what solitude is all about. Relationship with God. God is inviting you into a relationship where you can know and be known by the God and the creator of the universe. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. What a gift to be able to experience relationship with you every day. What a gift to know that your love of us was so intense that it pursued us and it sent it resulted in you sending your son to die for us and pay the penalty for our sins, that the removal of sin from the picture meant that we could enter into relationship with you again. And so, Lord, for those of us who don't know you but who are interested in that relationship with you, I just pray this prayer. Follow along with me if you're interested. We just say, Lord, we know that we're sinners. We know that we've made mistakes. We know that we've done things that separate us from your love. But we choose to believe in the power of Jesus Lord, we know that you sent your son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we choose to accept that gift and proclaim that we believe in Jesus and we want to follow him with our whole lives, Lord. We want that relationship with you. We don't want sin to be our masters in this life anymore. We don't want to walk alone. We don't want to walk in hiding. We don't want to walk by ourselves. We don't want to feel all these dark feelings in silence, Lord. We want to be full in our spirit with you. And so, Lord, we say, yes, please, I accept that gift. My life is yours. Thank you so much for your love. Lord, what a gift. What a gift it is that you're approachable. You're the God of the universe, and you're approachable individually with us, Lord. That's insane. Lord, you are so worthy of our praise. You're so worthy of everything, Lord. We worship you. We're so thankful for you. We pray this all in your name. Amen. And, you know, if you... If you chose to accept Jesus today, if you chose to say that I want to give my life to him and I want to start to follow him in relationship, I encourage you to reach out to us here at Life Church so that we can come alongside you, start taking the next steps with you, and just walk, walk together in this new journey that you want to, that you want to start. Again, thanks so much for being here today with me. This, uh, you know, good morning for those of you who are here in the morning. Good night to those here who are watching in the afternoon. We'll see you next time.